The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode. We've reached the point of reading what is, for my money, one of Shakespeare's least accessible plays, Coriolanus. I have to acknowledge a little prejudice here. My mother was an English teacher, and for a good deal of my early life, this play would appear every few years on the curriculum, and she never seemed to enjoy teaching it. Of all the plays, it is the one least comfortable giving up its secrets. But this is, perhaps, the point. As with all of Shakespeare's Roman plays, it's drawn from Plutarch's lives of the Greeks and Romans. The story of Coriolanus is from much earlier in Rome's history, from the period long before Rome became an empire. For Shakespeare's audience, if they knew the name at all, they'd know it as the name to be associated with betrayal, with turning your back on your people. Coriolanus defected to the Volscians, but ultimately came home and worked for Rome in the end. It's quite a peculiar story for Shakespeare to have taken on. This is a Rome that is seething with unrest. The play opens with the common people, as does Julius Caesar. They're in much less of a good mood here, as they are marching to fight against their conditions. They're starving because of grain shortages. In 1607, when this play was written, there had been comparable demonstrations in England, known collectively as the Midlands Revolt, because people were likewise starving. A combination of poor harvests and new measures allowing people to enclose common land meant that food was increasingly scarce. Interestingly, it doesn't become a play about the power of the people, or their daily bread. Instead, the angry populace sets the scene for Rome and slowly were drawn into the orbit of the title character. He begins the play as Caius Martius, and from his first entrance he seems to be little interested in the common people. In his first breath on stage, he calls them scabs. Despite this unpleasant introduction, he is eventually praised for his military achievements against the Volscians at Corioli, one of their main cities. It is for this that he's given the new name, Coriolanus. So far, so good. Next, he's encouraged to run for political office. The thinking is that since he's such a great military operator, he might do good for Rome as a politician. Trouble is, the first step in this is to speak to the common people, and he's not really very good at this. Interestingly, Shakespeare seems to cut down on soliloquies in this play. Unlike Hamlet, who relies on our attention and gains our sympathies by talking to us throughout his play, Coriolanus doesn't really let us in at all. It's as if we are an extension of those common people with whom he can't or doesn't want to connect. He doesn't speak to us, and so we find it very hard to side with him. In the BBC Shakespeare film of the play, made in the early 1980s, they turn some of his speeches into something like an internal monologue, but it still leaves us very much on the outside. This is a play about men and manhood, and what it means to be a good Roman. We've already had two big plays about the noblest Romans of them all, and here Shakespeare seems almost deliberately to have chosen a Roman notorious for his ignoble behaviour, abandoning his city, and then trying to make his story into a stage tragedy. We hear all about nobility, about class, about how to be a politician, how to be a soldier. 
despite the fact that we meet Coriolanus's wife and his young son and his mother, there doesn't seem to be much discussion of how to be a husband or a father. His own father does not feature, but there is a very interesting character called Menenius, an influential older man who is a far better politician and has some of the most interesting speeches in the play. He starts off talking to the plebs with an extended analogy all about the stomach. Drawn from Aesop's fables, he uses the story as a parable of civil unrest, which Shakespeare lifts wholesale from Plutarch. As ever, it's hard to decode whose side Shakespeare himself might be on. There are arguments to be made in support of either camp. Indeed, this play has continued to ignite political debate for centuries. Of all of Shakespeare's plays, it was this one that the great German master Bertolt Brecht chose to adapt, incidentally giving much more attention to the common people of Rome. This balance of opposing forces is made into a real person in the latter portion of the play. We meet Tullius Ophidius, the leader of the Volsians, and Coriolanus's counterpart, so they are evenly matched. They spar throughout the remainder of the play, and there's a kind of knowing awareness between them that theirs is a death match. Each knows that eventually he will have to kill the other or die in the attempt. When Coriolanus's political plans fail, because he cannot bring himself to accept the idea of popular rule, the tribunes arrange for him to be banished. In a terrific fit of rage, he banishes Rome from his sight instead. He decides that there is a world elsewhere and chooses to go and join the Volsians, those that he got a new name for defeating. There's a very interesting scene when he reaches their city. Ophidius doesn't recognise him. In fact, this is a theme throughout the play. Nobody can quite explain what Coriolanus looks like. Sure, he's a good soldier, and he's this and he's that, but Shakespeare is at pains to make us hear that there's very little about him that is specific or memorable. Nothing you can really pin down. Maybe this is another reason why the play can feel so inaccessible. Not only is he withholding and difficult, everyone else is talking about how they can't get a handle on him either. Very often, when I'm reading a Shakespeare play, I like to think about how I might cast it, sometimes for the stage, sometimes for the screen. Reading the play this week, I was bemused at how not a single face came to mind for this hero, or anti-hero. After our discussion in the last episode of what on earth kind of young man might have played Cleopatra, I confess that I'm even more stumped wondering how a boy of less than 15 might have played Coriolanus's mother, Volumnia. Cleopatra might be the most fascinating woman Shakespeare ever created, but Volumnia is the most commanding. She makes short work of poor Virgilia, her daughter-in-law, and dominates every scene in which she appears. It is thanks only to her intercession that the Volsians do not sack Rome. Where all others fail to get through to Coriolanus, she manages, in a really amazing scene, to appeal to his deepest self and make him realise that he cannot attack the city of his birth. He himself, by the end of this, knows what he must do, and he knows, too, that it will probably be the death of him. Sure enough, he manages to broker a truce, but in the end he's stabbed to death for it. Just about any of Shakespeare's plays can be made to seem relevant if you look at it from the right angle. 
This one feels like it's screaming out for interpretation these days in a variety of possible contexts. There's a repudiation of general ignorance and the dangerous political choices that can be made by an ignorant populace. The people manipulated terribly and to a shocking extent by the tribunes who have their own interests are forced to realise that they've shouted very loudly for something that is now leaving them deeply vulnerable and hungrier than ever. Remind you of anything? Amazingly, I don't even need to be specific. There is an alarming number of contexts and climates to which this applies right now. There's a great deal in the play about names and about reputation. In ancient Rome, there was a particular punishment called damnatio memoriae, condemnation of memory. This was reserved for those whose influence was so damaging that it was decreed that they be left out of all political accounts. Now, millennia later, Eleanor Roosevelt would wisely counsel that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. But isn't it impressive to think that Rome was so aware of one's reputation and one's contribution to society that one of the worst punishments was that you could be erased, removed from history and condemned to be forgotten? What a threat that might seem to certain public figures today. Volumnia in particular is aware of this threat, and in that powerful scene she reminds her son of it. Thou knowest, great son, the end of war is uncertain, but this certain, that if thou conquer Rome, the benefit which thou shalt thereby reap is such a name, whose reputation will be dogged with curses, whose chronicle thus writ. The man was noble, but with his last attempt he wiped it out, destroyed his country, and his name remains to the ensuing age abhorred. One's name is everything. In her consistently inspiring book, This is Shakespeare, Emma Smith writes extensively about names in this play, from the little moment in which Caius Martius forgets a benefactor's name, to the way that his own name is changed, all the way through Hazlitt and Freud, and even how the folio itself also gets some names wrong. What's in a name, indeed? Thanks to Shakespeare, the name Coriolanus has attracted a kind of tortured heroism. Doing the right thing in the end, despite your previous anger and choices, and your knowledge that it may actually kill you. Shakespeare managed to change the reputation attached to this name. I find it very moving that the final words are given to Ophidius, who insists that even though Coriolanus has widowed and orphaned so many of the Volsians, he will nevertheless have a noble memory. On stage this play can be very powerful, but it can also be a desperate slog. Some very, very indulgent friends took me to see a production in the Odeon of Herod Atticus in Athens one year. We made it to the interval, halfway through the four-hour show, and then decided that there were more exciting things to do that night. By contrast, soon afterwards, I saw an equally long production by Ninagawa when it came to London in 2007, and I was transfixed throughout. Glutton for punishment that I am, I saw the whole thing twice within 24 hours. There was an impressive recent movie of the play with Ray Fiennes, and a really brilliant production starring Tom Hiddleston at the Donmar Warehouse. Once you start looking for Coriolanus, he seems to crop up in all sorts of places. 
T.S. Eliot wrote a sequence of poems about him, not least since T.S. Eliot thought that this was a better play than Hamlet. Beethoven even wrote a Coriolan overture, and I would have used it for the music for this episode had my research not told me that, in fact, it was an overture for a play by someone called Heinrich Josef von Collen rather than for our Shakespeare play. But by all means do go and listen to it and celebrate Beethoven's 250th birthday this year. In the meantime, we are all but finished with Rome and, would you believe, with Shakespearean tragedy. There's still a good few plays for us to get through, and lest you thought we were done with murderers and villains, worry not. Next week, we will conclude our trek through the two cycles and eight plays of the major histories, presided over by one of Shakespeare's most glorious villains of all, Richard III. It's an extraordinary play, and I really hope you'll enjoy reading it. I'll be back here next week, and I hope you'll join me then.